pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, thanks for this morning and these people and this community and uh, what you're doing in our hearts. Help us love you more this morning and deeper and just have a deeper appreciation for who you are. And, uh, and God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would challenge and transform us, that we would not be the same as when we walked in these doors. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Matt's not here. It's my turn. Uh, Exodus Church is going to tackle controversies, okay? You guys ready? Is anybody feeling comfortable? We're going to talk about very controversial topics, and I need everybody to give an opinion. Are you guys okay with that? All right, number one, cilantro. Is cilantro delicious or does it taste like soap? I hear there's a genetic disposition for some people that cilantro tastes like soap. So how many of you think cilantro is delicious? And this is true for me. How many of you think that it tastes like soap? Do we have any soap tasters? A couple. Okay, okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, the second one, oh, this is, it's a little hard to see, but what color is the dress? Some of you guys may remember this. Uh, is this, this was a big thing on the internet, I don't know, 10 years ago. Is this dress blue or is this dress gold? So how many of you see a blue dress? Show of hands. How many of you see a gold dress? Okay. Now, there's an actual answer to that one. The, the dress is blue, but there is something the science people know about the way our eyes respond to it that um, it is that some people see a gold dress, uh, although the, the actual dress is blue. Next one, t- let's talk about pineapple on pizza, okay? Is it yum or is it unacceptable? And if you can't quite see it with the glare, that's Batman slapping Robin because pineapple on pizza is wrong. Uh, How many of you like pineapple on pizza? Pineapple on pizza. How many of you do not like pineapple on pizza? That was a little closer to 50-50. Okay. No wrong answer on that one. The next one we have is... Oh, so an animated looping image. Is it a GIF, or do you pronounce it a GIF, the dot G-I-F? How many of you pronounce that, oh, somebody sent me a GIF on my phone? Does anybody say somebody sent me a GIF on my phone? Yeah, no problem. Nope, yeah. <laughs> that, I've, I've heard both for that. I like the picture, though. Um, better franchise? Are we Marvel people or are we DC people? So this is, I know some people get really into this. It's not my, like, I don't have a strong opinion, but how many of you are Marvel, Marvel franchise movies? Any DC franchise folks in the house? Not, I mean, there's some, DC has some of the old classics, right? DC is Superman and Batman. So, that's kind of like if you go back to the earlier generations, those are really big, but the, the modern movies, Marvel tends to be a little bit more powerful. Uh, Pluto's status. Let's, let's be honest about Pluto. Um, when I heard that in 2006 it was like demoted to a dwarf planet, 
this is a controversy. Let's talk about it. How many of you think that, no, 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 Pluto is a planet. Let's be honest. Once a planet, always a planet. How many of you say that, no, dwarf planet is a fair, would prefer to, like you would say Pluto is a dwarf planet. See? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I feel like the kids now, they're being taught that it's a dwarf planet, you know? Um, Anyway. Uh, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Is it LeBron James? Is it Michael Jordan? How many, of you, how many of you would say it is LeBron James, greatest of all time? Greatest of all time. How many of you would say Michael Jordan, greatest of all time? See, interesting, I feel like our, our demographic, there's not a lot of like 20s in the room. Um, I wonder if they would feel differently if there were 20-somethings. Um, who've seen LeBron and only heard about Michael, whereas we've, if you're old enough and follow basketball, we've lived through both of them. Well, that's easy. Yeah, Simone Biles, without a doubt. How about a hot dog? Is a hot dog a sandwich or is it definitely not a sandwich? This is a, this is a very important, very important discussion. How many of you think that would say, given you got to pick one or the other, is a hot dog a sandwich? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes, yes, yes. Is a hot dog not a sandwich? Not a sandwich. Okay, that's fair. That's totally fair. Uh, whose side are you on? Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Elon Musk, the owner of X, formerly known as Twitter. Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook. There was talk of them actually having some sort of a sparring match, cage fight, like MMA. Was it MMA or boxing or something like that? I think it was canceled, but how many of you would be rooting for Elon Musk? <laughs> how many of you would be rooting for Mark Zuckerberg? Okay, how many of you would just re- hope that they kind of both somehow lose? Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. And this is a question especially for, for uh, Aaron and anybody else who plays golf. John, whose side are you on? This is maybe not as much of a, of a thing as it was maybe six or eight months ago. But the PGA Tour, the kind of the classic golf tour that we know, or the Live Tour, which was sponsored by the Saudi uh, tournament or the Saudi government that put a lot of money to create a golf tournament uh, or a golf league to compete with the PGA. How many of you pro PGA? Pro PGA? Any, anybody willing to put their hands up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm on the Live side? Any Live? Free market, right? Free market. Okay, the last one. Uh, how about Jesus Christ? Okay. There is a controversy with Jesus Christ. We'll talk about this a little bit today. But the question we're going to look at and the kind of the word that we hear Jesus even say is, are we offended by Jesus or are we not offended by Jesus? I won't have you raise your hands. That could be a little bit interesting or a little bit awkward. But here's where this comes from is that... <clears throat> We're going to look at Luke chapter 7 here in just a minute. But if you go back to the time of Jesus in the Middle East and Israel uh, back, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was this expectation of what the Savior, the Messiah, should be. What he will be, what he needs to be uh, in their time. And, and, if, and I think if you look in the context and... Uh, from what we know historically, that people were wanting the Messiah to be a few things. One, 
is that he would overthrow the Roman authorities. We don't really know what it's like as Americans, and most, I think most all of us have grown up in America, what it's like to be in a country that is under a regime of another country. And if you look in the Old Testament, the power that God gives the people of Israel, and when I say power, like they're, the power of the connection they had to the land, that land was given by God. And the fact that the Romans militarily had conquested their, their country uh, back, you know, in a century before Jesus, oppressed, that was offensive to them. They felt like they were, and they were oppressed. They were oppressed as a people in the Roman Empire. And the, 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 the Savior, the Messiah, needed to throw out the Romans. That was, it was first and foremost. Has anybody been watching The, the Chosen? The, it's a movie. I almost showed like a four-minute clip because I think it's really helpful to appreciate the context. But there were people whose lives, uh, the, the, and one of Jesus' followers, Simon, was called a zealot. And the zealot was a, was a group of people who their whole existence was about getting rid of the Romans. Like that was their, they were kind of like a militant anti-Roman people, or like a subgroup, um, and they were just trying to get rid of the Romans. And so getting rid of the Roman occupation was first and foremost on the minds of people in Jesus' day. Another thing was just conquering the enemies of Israel on all sides. It wasn't necessarily just the Romans, but if you look in the Old Testament, there's all sorts of challenges with the Philistines or the Gershonites and um, you know, they, they escaped out of Egypt and just different people groups that they would have these warring uh, battles with. And so the Messiah must create peace, must create and conquer, you know, peace through conquering the enemies of God's people. Uh, also establishing a peaceful rule of government. So establishing a healthy and beautiful government where God's people, the nation of Israel, could be strong and, and healthy and overthrow the Romans, uh, protect them and kick out all their, uh, the oppressive and all the, their enemies, and then prospering the nation with, you know, productive farmland. Most of the people were, were farmers, and so just having a healthy agrarian, you know, if somehow the Messiah could control the weather so that there would be you know, rains would come when they were supposed to come. And so these are the, some of the ideas, I think, at the time that, that Jesus was here on earth, that these are the expectations of the Savior. He was going to rule. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to conquer enemies. And he was going to establish a government of rule. And then Jesus comes. Does Jesus do all of these things as we read about him in the Gospels and the biographies about Jesus? And really, he doesn't. Uh, he's a little surprisingly indifferent when it comes to the Romans. Um, he doesn't take up an army. He tells people to put away their swords. Um, he doesn't create a, a government for himself. And this is surprising. And honestly, it's fairly offensive. And so, to the extent that in Luke chapter 7, 
there's a, an interesting thing happens that I never really paid too much attention to until recently, in the last couple of years. I heard, uh, as I was reading, I heard some really interesting and beautiful teaching on this, on what, what's happening here, is that John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, and who even the Old Testament said, you know, was preparing the way for the Messiah, that John the Baptist had some concerns. He had some questions about Jesus. And we're going to look at what these questions are. And you can read there if you want. Uh, It's on the screen. It's Luke chapter 7, verse 18 to 23. In the first couple verses, it says, The disciples of John also reported uh, to him, him being John, about all these things. These things, if you look at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus had just ruined a funeral by raising the dead person from the, the, uh, from the casket. Okay, ruining the funeral. That was kind of a joke. Um, ending the funeral in the most beautiful way possible. Uh, so he had been healing people. He had just raised the son of a widow from the town of Nain earlier in this chapter. And maybe that was even specifically what was, what was being talked about. And so John's disciples told John the Baptist about these things that were happening. Jesus is, is healing these people. He even brought this person back from the dead. Uh, verse 19, after summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord and saying, are you the coming one or should we look for another? And so when John's disciples came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the coming one or are we to look for another? I never really paid too much attention to why this happened. But, and, and John doesn't exactly tell us why, but I wonder if John the Baptist, great though he is, and this person who was paving the way for Jesus though he is, that John the Baptist had some concerns and questions. That Jesus was not meeting the expectation of what the Messiah what he thought the Messiah was going to come and be. Maybe John was thinking that, like a lot of people at the time, that Jesus was going to become a military ruler, that he was going to overthrow the government or overthrow the Romans and establish his own government and be more like the, the king that David was way back a thousand years before Jesus. And he wasn't. He wasn't going in the same route, that, the, the same playbook that John had in his mind. And so John's in prison. He sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And it, it almost like it, it, it kind of asks twice. And I've been told in, you know, when you're studying scripture, if you see things repeated, it's almost like there's, you can almost imagine an exclamation point or um, it, it's loud. And so in back-to-back verses, it says, are you the coming one or are we to look for another? Are you really the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? And um, let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus was wonderful uh, in his responses. In verse 21, he says, that the, And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. Now, perhaps that means that even when John's disciples were there asking the question— that they were actually overseeing Jesus doing these things. Maybe. If you watch The Chosen, 
that's what they think. You know, that's what they kind of set up that happens. That John's disciples are watching Jesus in front of these crowds, healing people. Um, so at the time he was doing that, verse 22, and he answered and said to him, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. People who were blind receive sight. People who are limp walked. People with leprosy are cleansed and people who are deaf hear. Dead people are raised up and people who are poor have the gospel preached to them. And then this is the kicker. This is kind of like my, my theme here for this discussion. Blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. Blessed is anyone who doesn't take offense at me. Jesus, maybe he's recognizing that he's not what they anticipated the Messiah to do. But he's, he describes all the things that he is doing. The powers of God of restoration and healing, spiritual healing, physical healing, people who are poor having the good news be spoken and taught to them. And he might realize that that is offensive to some people. That's not what they want in their Savior. Um, But blessed are those who are not offended by this. So John the Baptist, I think, I think we can read into this, that he was wrestling with how Jesus compared to his, his own idea of what the Savior should be. Didn't quite match the picture that John the Baptist had in his mind. Now, that's something that I think we in our day can also have a challenge with. Does Jesus match our idea for what a Savior should be? Now, we don't have the, we're not in a cultural moment where we expect a Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government. That's not, that's not kind of how we think. But I think that all of us would probably have a sense of what we would expect a Savior in our life. And it might look something like this. This is some sketch that I had for American desires for a Savior. First and foremost, financial prosperity, Right? If I give my life over to the Messiah, isn't he going to make my financial world stable and secure and and good and and kind of live the good life? Is he going to give me great friends? I work with teenagers, adolescents, and so many of of them, I feel like what their deepest longing is really good friendships. And if I give, if I trust the Messiah with my life, I'm going to get good friends, right? That's what my, I really want is good friends. And maybe this Messiah will give me those good friends. Or a romantic relationship. A spouse. I'll find the one if I trust in Jesus as my Messiah. Maybe if they are married, they would give me a child. That that not that what God wants for all of us? To give me a child? Or give me awesome kids? You know what I'm talking about, parents? You know, those kind of kids that always make you look, makes you look like a good parent and they don't get in a lot of trouble and, you know, maybe they're like really talented in some different ways and the other parents are like, wow, you know, uh, isn't that what the Savior would want for me to bless my idea of the good life? Um, and, and even is in a, this has maybe become more, uh, relevant in the last few years of just this idea that wouldn't the Savior create a really great 
nation for America and give us the kind of government that I think is great uh, and reflect my ideas of, of how things should be. And I think that if we're honest about following Jesus, I think we see that Jesus doesn't always do these things. He doesn't always give us all the, the friends that we think that he would, or he doesn't give us that spouse, doesn't give us the child or the children or the awesome children, doesn't give us the easy life, the comfortable, successful life. And I think we can be offended by that too. We can be offended that Jesus doesn't become the Messiah that we in our own mind expect him to be. And that's why I think this text is really, really valuable. Because it helps us realize there's space in Scripture to wrestle with God when it feels like Jesus doesn't fit our idea of what, it's, what he's supposed to do as our Savior. And I think that that's encouraging. And here's just a couple thoughts of why I think that's really encouraging. Um, for me, and I know as I speak to a lot of young people um, who are still developing their faith and still developing this idea of what does it mean to follow Jesus, that this text, I think, could be really helpful and life-giving in the midst of the reality of life, in the midst of the messiness and the challenge of following Jesus in the midst of things not all going the way that we would want it to. And here's a couple reasons. One is that John, sorry, Jesus welcomes John's initial question. So Jesus knows that John is wrestling with the idea of, Jesus, I'm not sure, are, are you really the one or should we look for another? And Jesus doesn't laugh at John. Jesus doesn't make fun of John. Jesus doesn't get angry at John. He just says, here's, here's what, you know, tell, report to him back. Here are the amazing things God's doing through me. And blessed are you if you're not offended. And so if we have times where we're like wrestling with our expectations of the, the life that we thought the Savior would give us versus what is, as we look at Jesus, when we have these questions, I think Jesus welcomes us. And he welcomes our wrestling. Uh, and he welcomes us as we, and encourages us to not be offended by him. To keep exploring and keep trusting in Jesus, even when it doesn't seem quite like what, for whatever reason, our anticipation would be. Uh, the second thing is that it's not a problem that Jesus is offensive. It's not a problem that he's controversial. I think that I was talking to some folks earlier about how, I think it was Kevin, just, just when we got here about, you know, when, when I'm old enough that when I was growing up, there was more of this consensus sense that, oh, everyone, everyone's like pro-Jesus, right? And I think as time has gone on as I've gotten older, there's, no, not everyone is even pro-Jesus. Jesus himself is a little controversial. And when you look at Jesus in his real life, he was absolutely controversial. And uh, even in young life, we've been talking about, over the summer, we had a whole series about how, how the people that loved Jesus the most oftentimes were the least religious people. And the people who 
were most offended by Jesus were the most religious people. And how that must have, for a lot of people, been hard to get their brain around. How is Jesus so accepted by some of the least religious and so offensive to some of the most religious? And so the idea of Jesus being offensive is, shouldn't be a surprise to us. He is, it's to be expected. And Jesus is okay with the fact that he, uh, not, that not everybody is pro-Jesus all the time. Um, if you want to be practical, I think that you could make an argument that in our culture right now, that people who, you know, exemplify the, the left, whatever that means, they would be offended by Jesus for certain things about how, how Jesus was very uh, adamant against sin and uh, sexual purity and different things, and that people on the left in America might find Jesus offensive today. But also, people on the right, whatever that means, would find Jesus offensive too. His compassion for uh, nonviolence, his compassion for those who are left out, left behind, um, immigrants, the poor, rejection of status. And so if you find yourself wrestling with, hey, Jesus doesn't, isn't like a perfect match for my own ideology, my own political ideology or whatever, that's okay. That's what's to be expected. In the end, Jesus says, blessed is anybody who does not take offense at me. I think what he's saying is, blessed are those who are following me, who are trusting me, and don't give up on me because you're finding me offensive. Because you find that I don't lay over your ideas of what the Savior is supposed to be. Blessed are you if you just keep coming and following me. Blessed are you, Exodus Church, if you just keep reading and learning about Jesus and keep praying to the Lord and and inviting him to be your Savior, even when you're wrestling with the reality of how the truth about Jesus isn't exactly maybe what you thought of uh, from your, what a Savior could be. Um, number three, by following the real Jesus, we too can make others feel uncomfortable. And there's a way to make people feel uncomfortable that's just not because you're being like Jesus. We can all be arrogant. We can all be abrasive. We can all just be a jerk. Um, and that's not really what Jesus is talking about. Uh, I'm going to show you a quote that I came across in the last couple weeks from an article. And the article is called The Sad Irony About Celebrity Pastors. And it's a reflection from a a non-religious writer about um, a fall of a big celebrity pastor and how there's kind of this deep irony that the more, that if celebrity is what makes you effective as a pastor, that, that that same celebrity makes your fall from grace and from upstandingness. Talking about this idea that if we're just selling people what he called Christ, uh, uh, your regular life with a twist of Christianity, um, that it's not that compelling, even to non-religious people. And so this is his quote. He says, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and shouldn't believe. But still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable 
for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. I really liked that quote. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, And this is from a non-religious person. And I love the perspective of like, if you really, if following Jesus is really significant, then you should look different. And that's okay. You don't, you shouldn't look just like every other American from your social class that lives in your town or whatever. That you should live in a way that makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, oh, you are not, you have a, a different set of priorities than I do. You live your life to a different standard than I do. So I really like that. Um, the last encouragement <clears throat> is that as we follow Jesus as Lord, um, our desires will become more like his. And I think that's really cool. I think that as we continue to trust, the, the things that r- right now in our lives might be challenging our hearts, that, that our idea of the Savior, he doesn't quite match, I think as we continue to follow Jesus, our hearts will become more like, oh, and that's okay. Because Jesus' way of being a Savior is actually a lot better than my cultural vision of what the Savior was going to be. Um, and I, I didn't put this on the slide, but I thought about saying it, and I, since I, I think I will say it. I feel like if Jesus doesn't challenge you on something, you uh, either aren't looking at the real Jesus, or you've become so much like Jesus that he's just not challenging you anymore. And so as we become more and more like Jesus— the truth of who he is, the truth of the kind of Messiah and Savior he is, is more and more what we realize deep down is truly satisfying and truly gives us hope and truly gives us um, purpose and direction in our lives. So in the end, um, blessed are each of us, blessed is Exodus Church, if we are not offended, if we do not take offense at who Jesus is. And blessed are you if you are wrestling with Jesus even right now about how he might not be measuring up to your preconceived notion of what the Savior was supposed to be. Because I think that was true for John the Baptist, and I think Jesus welcomes us as we are to trust him in that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to enter communion. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you um, that this is in the Bible I know in my own life I've had times where I have um, anticipated a certain script that following you is going to lead to, whether it's financial success or ministry success or a family that looked a certain way, and, and that wasn't what really matters, Lord. And I thank you for how you've drawn me closer to you, and I thank you that, that the questioning that John the Baptist has here is real that we can be honest about that, and that you welcome those questions. And you're not afraid of those questions. And you're not afraid to challenge us of our idea of what the Savior should be. And um, I thank you that we're going to become more like you, and we're going to be more excited about the Savior you are and less frustrated about the Savior that we wish you would be. So bless this church. Bless our community. 
give us a sweet time here uh, together this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.